Welcome to Between Data and Risk podcast. Today, we'll be talking about private equity investments in the lower middle and middle market businesses. Our guest will be Joe McIsaac, operating partner at Woodlake Group, a private investment firm with a focus on this specific sector. Stay tuned. If you're a business owner or senior manager, you probably had more than enough about all the wonderful opportunities awaiting you in the era of digitalization. Whether it is big data, cloud, data science, or whatever buzzword is currently trendy. If you would like to hear someone dissecting these claims and showing you what it actually takes to improve business processes, you're in the right place. This is Between Data and Risk, where we discuss real life examples of what works and what doesn't in the world of business operations. Hi, I'm your friendly neighborhood data guy, Dr. Marian Siwiak, and with me is my co-host, Artur Guja, Cognition Shared Solutions Chief Risk and Strategy Officer. Hello. Welcome to this episode of Between Data and Risk. Today we'll be talking about operational scalability and due diligence in the context of private equity, and we're excited to have with us today our guest, Joe McIsaac, Operating Partner at Woodlake Group, President and CEO with extensive private equity experience, who agreed to share his experience with us. Hello, Joe. Good morning, good afternoon. How are you? Yes, we are absolutely thrilled to, to, to have you here. Uh, we can't wait to, 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 to listen about private equity and, and operations uh, from and someone with your experience. We've, uh, we've, we've touched a bit about private equity in some of the previous episodes. So it's a, it's a topic which uh, kind of comes in and we've, we've had some questions from, from listeners uh, because it's, it's kind of sometimes seen as, uh, you know, uh, getting funding from private equity. People are, it, it's a bit, there's a bit of mystery around it. Right. So let's let's kind of first give our listeners a very clear view of what we mean by private equity. Certainly. Um, I mean, the private equity industry is really not one thing. There are some very sophisticated, you know, multi-billion dollar investors that invest in huge companies, make big commitments of hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars for individual companies. There also is uh, middle market and even lower middle market. Lower middle market might be an acquisition as, as low where the total price could be $10 million. So that would be the entire enterprise value of a company. So mm -hmm. between $10 million and in the multiple of billions of dollars, there's huge discrepancies as to what the meaning is. So typically, it's just where there's a controlling investment where a private equity group or a group of partners, oftentimes uh, more than one investor, makes a controlling investment in a company. Could be a family-owned business, could be another private equity-owned business, uh, and it could be in really any industry, industrial, mm. software, distribution. And when you say controlling, uh, what do you mean by, by, by controlling parties? Well, that's a good question. Mm. Uh, where they own more than 50% of the equity interests so that they have control of the board mm -hmm. of directors and control over the investment so that if there's a, uh, a decision that has to be made where the private equity firm has a firm view and they don't want to deviate from that decision, then as the controlling mm. investor, they say, no, this is what we're going to do. Now, it's, and this it's, is unusual, it's unusual, but it does happen. 
this this is where I think the 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 kind of it gets it gets a bit uh, you know pe- people are a bit wary of of private equity because uh, it it does kind of come with the connotation of taking over the business and 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 directing it, but so kind of let let's let's put a positive uh, kind of let's expose the positive side of it apart from just injecting money which uh, you know startups firms uh, organizations can get from various sources what does private equity bring to the company that is of value of, of it's, it's non-financial but it's of 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 value to the company well i think the real value for so, so there's two values if if you are if you're a company owner you have liquidity which means you get to realize the value of your company by receiving payment. So if it's a family-owned business, uh, the family is not going to be able to pass the company down to the next generation. Providing liquidity and being able to have a, a, a way to monetize the business is a big, is a big value. Now, what's the value beyond uh, a check? Is it, it can be financial. It can be operational. A lot of private equity firms would prefer to buy a family-owned business because they think there's lots of opportunity to improve the operations. There's there's ability to improve the financial management of the business. There's an opportunity to to improve the cash flow, opportunity to improve things like working capital. So Mm -hmm. if you're an owner-operator, these things are important to you. But they may not be the most important thing. And you might be just going day to day trying to deal with customers and suppliers and not paying too much attention to things like cash flow or working capital. Working capital is a big one, too. I mean, working capital is usually the amount of money that's tied up with your inventory and your receivables. And so if you're financing your customers and you're not collecting your receivables fast enough, somebody is paying that money, whether you have uh, a line with the bank mm-hmm. or it, it could be your money. So yes. private equity knows how to do a lot of those things. Probably the first thing private equity does if they buy a family-owned business is they hire a CFO that has experience in running businesses efficiently. Mm-hmm. When you mentioned this family-owned businesses, I would expect they are in this middle or, or lower middle market rather than multi-billion uh, endeavors. Uh, you have many years of experience and now you're operating in this, this middle or lo- lower middle uh, market. Why, wh- why there? I guess, you know, it, it's a matter of choice rather than, than, than the necessity. But the question is, what's so interesting in, in this market to keep you there? Well, I think in each segment of the market, there's competition. And if the companies are big enough to hire an investment bank rather than just a business broker, and the larger acquisitions are almost always done through an investment bank. The investment bank runs a process where they try to get as many buyers as possible so that they can realize the highest price. So if there uh, are 30 private equity firms that are looking at a business, and six are interested and three become finalists, that business will realize the marketplace maximum value because it'll have exposure to 30, 40 different people. 
smaller businesses are you, the the overall dollars are smaller, but the same is true of the returns. So it's a lot of work to run a business that does fifty million in revenue, but it's not uh, ten times less work than to run one that's five hundred million. So it's not so much how much work; it's really around competition and price discovery. Mm-hmm. I think the smaller businesses have less competition. Uh, I have another question, which one of our first episodes uh, was um, with. Uh, gentleman who who's been investing in companies uh himself and we were discussing about um, sustainability of operations and importance of sustainability of of acquired companies uh, there is a question especially i guess for 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 family owned business like won't this business be treated like a hot potato Pumped up and sold out for profit as soon as possible, and um, you know, letting somebody else uh, worry about it. What's your approach uh, to, to to sustainability of operations of the acquired companies? Well, if you think about the investment in in a business, um, and this kind of takes us to 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 a different subject, but I think one we should cover, which is both the due diligence. But even before due diligence is just the evaluation that you make before you get to a due diligence. Mm-hmm. Due diligence mm-hmm. really only happens with one company. Uh, one acquirer does due diligence before they make an acquisition. Mm-hmm. In the case that I gave where maybe uh, 60 firms are looking at a business, six or nine will be interested. Those six or nine might spend you know, tens or, or, or 50 hours doing their evaluation on their dime. And then only one will do the due diligence. So the part that, that I think is important is that evaluation, as a buyer, you're trying to learn as much as you can about the business. And you have access to the owners, typically have a non-disclosure agreement so that they can give you their financial information. You go and visit with the management team spend a half a day with the management team. Uh, and that's where, where the experience that I have, which is more of an operator than of an investor, has really been valuable. Because when you sit at the table and you meet the CEO, the CFO, head of human resources, the VP of sales, and the VP of operations, and you spend a whole day going through, you maybe tour the facility, you have a whole day, Apologies. Where you're spending with the team and, and you're trying to really figure out is what they're showing us really a representation of what's happening? Okay. And if, you have, if you've got a lot of operating experience, you can walk around a facility, whether it be a manufacturing facility or a distribution warehouse, and you can tell by how clean the floor is how well the aisles are marked, how new the paint on the floor, because typically the floor is painted with, you know, different, don't drive your fork truck, forklift here. Just looking at those things can give you an indication of what's important to the existing ownership. So you can, so you can discover two things. You can discover 
there's a lot of opportunity to improve them, uh, which is not necessarily a bad thing. And in family-owned correct, if it's valued correct. correctly when you buy it. Correct. And in family-owned businesses, that may not be the most important thing. Right. Or whether right. the floors are clean or whether they, they throw the garbage away more than once a day. Mm -hmm. um, but if you've been in a, in a world-class facility, there's no trash. The paint is not worn off. All of the aisles are marked. Every location is marked clearly with, with professional markers, not, not a, a whiteboard that gets erased or a, a piece of tape with a piece of paper and a handwritten sign. So those are all things that um, as, you, as you're touring a facility and then you sit and spend half a day with the management, those are all clues that you're trying to piece together. And so we ask questions like, when was the last time you had a thorough cleaning? Or tell me how you're going to plan to, to move this new equipment over here. Take, take me through the planning of how you move these uh, the, the product, the raw materials that you receive to the racks, to the manufacturing facility, to the final goods, and, and just see how they think about that process. Because there's, mm -hmm. there's dozens of books written on all that stuff. So you mentioned on your, um, in your LinkedIn profile and, and in some of the, 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 the posts that we've seen, you mentioned 360 degree diligence. Now, is that, is that exactly what you mean by, by well, nor, normally, normally 360 is used in uh, performance reviews when you, you kind of, uh, you get reviewed by your, uh, your manager, your peers and your, your subordinates. What do you mean by, by 360 in, in case of due diligence? Well, in, in case of due diligence, it's really taking a, a view from the perspective of the business and looking at all the way around like you would look at the hands on a clock. And so most people want to look at the financial statements, and that's just one piece on the clock. So you have to look at legal, human resources, finance, operations. Um, there, there's literally... An, and oftentimes, as you uncover one, there's the answer to one question brings you to another question, and it might even be in a different category. <laughs> so I think it's really having a holistic approach where you're not just focused on the financial metrics. Now, the most important thing to most financial buyers is that they're, they're looking at, are the finances what they say they are? So the, the black and white on a spreadsheet, does it reflect the true nature of the costs and the revenues of the business. But where you're doing due diligence, you want to look at, talk to the suppliers, talk to the customers, talk to not just the, uh, the C-suite, but see if you can talk to resources, talk to operations, talk to logistics, to see if you're getting the same answers that they've listed in their, because typically there's a, presentation that describes all the different parts of the business, you kind of want to verify each of the different parts. I, I think of it more 360 as you're in the middle of the clock and you're going through all of the different categories that are mentioned in the deck, including the, the important ones. Now, for financials, private equity will often use uh, consulting firms like the major accounting firms. And those mm -hmm. accounting firms will do 
uh, an entire new balance sheet and profit and loss themselves. And they'll see how close it comes to the one provided by the company. If it's a, if it's a family business, they might have everything on QuickBooks. And so that, that's an expensive way to do due diligence on, on smaller companies. You probably wouldn't go to that length. But it's not unusual to have entirely new balance sheet and P&L put together mm-hmm. by a third party with the information that they've been given. So you, you, you look at, uh, you, you kind of, you say you want to look beyond the financials, obviously, because that's, uh, that gives you only one facet of the business. So with my kind of risk manager hat on, my, my favorite subject, risk management, how do you, how do you consider the, the practices that the business had, the operations around their resilience? And uh, because obviously, if, you, if, if a business is trying to get sold, they want to present themselves from the best possible uh, side. So they will probably also try to get sold at the time when everything is going great. And they will show, you know, now we are in our best shape ever. How do you consider how they're prepared for when the wind turns and they, they, they're suddenly, you know, will they, will they withstand any shock in the market? Well, I think that that's a, that's a great point. The, the idea of doing a sensitivity analysis would be part of any due diligence. And back, back to my position as operator rather than a financial manager. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've worked with some great CFOs and great VPs of finance who've taught me a, a whole slew of very important lessons. Um, and so you have to rely on them. But, but you're right, Artur, the, the position that the company, and if they hire a bank or even a broker, they're trying to show it's never been better. This is the best time. We're gonna, we, we grew a lot the last three years, and we're going to grow three more years at the same rate. So you basically have to make your own assumptions. Um, and and if, you're, if you're buying a business where you're going to have some amount of debt, you have to be sure that you have enough room because with the debt holder, typically you know, a bank or there's lots of alternative investments now, which effectively private equity firms that are providing credit. Um, they have a first right to the business. And so if you, if you break the covenants of your mm-hmm. credit agreement, they could take the company over. So if, you, yep. if you're making an acquisition and you're using a lot of leverage, you have 30, 40, or 50% uh, debt, you have to be very careful because you're basically risking your investment if the business would ever get in a position where the creditors could take it over. But think about it. You're the one proposing the amount of debt. So you have to have the amount of debt, uh, have enough flexibility to withstand a big downturn. And for those of us who've been through 2009 and 10, 2000, 2001, these were significant downturns. And then clearly, the uh, I think I think using the the pandemic as an example is difficult because there was a government bailout effectively where companies were able to get PPP money uh, to keep them afloat. So that was a bit artificial. But the real you know economic downturns of of two thousand uh, I'm just going in my experience two thousand two thousand one 
which I think for the business I was involved in at the time was 20 or 22%, which is catastrophic. I mean, a lot of businesses can't withstand a 22% revenue decline. You can't cut your expenses fast enough. Uh, and then the financial crisis in 2009 and 2010, uh, nobody trusted anybody. So anybody who had an outstanding debt was not going to be happy to renegotiate credit, which is usually what happens. Mm-hmm. Right? If, you, if you break a covenant with most banks or lenders, all they do is charge you a free fee, redo the loan, extend it, potentially charge you more interest. And so if you're an investor, that just means you've made less money in this investment. So Absolutely. the credit analysis, this, this is where actually private equity earns their money because that part of the business, right? The financial management, how much leverage can a business carry is a, is a very important question. So to your question, how do you determine how well the company will do if there's a downturn? Now you... You can't really spend a lot of time thinking, how well will we do if they're not telling us the truth? Because you'll uncover that in due diligence. It's really if the market turns against you, then. um, And so for somebody who does uh, risk analysis, we're just looking at, um, you know, different models, different financial models that says if the revenue declines at this level over this period of time, we will have to reduce expenses this much, uh, which is reasonable. If we have to reduce expenses, you know, X plus Y, is the business gonna be able to recover? And do you have to cut so much that you don't have enough salespeople or enough operational support and you can't support your customers when they come back? So there's a real balance between making sure that you have enough room and in private equity, nobody likes to go in and make less money in, in a year because your sales have declined. But you want to be able to keep the business in a way that if as the demand comes back, you can uh, take advantage of the marketplace without having to hire and train people, which is expensive and takes a lot of time. But I, I want to challenge you here a bit because, again, this is... This is looking at uh, at a company from a very financial centric point of view. Uh, what about uh, kind of stepping back and looking at the operation uh, and looking at how the company, you know, whether the company uh, will be able to actually prevent the decline in sales uh, or 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 the losses, the operational losses, because. Uh, it, one, if if the comp, if the sales decline, that means that an event has already happened, and you're looking whether the 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 kind of the organism will will still survive one is one once it's been wounded. But what about the resilience of a company to actually prevent the wound? And uh, in case of disruption of, uh, for example, uh, supply chains, having a supply chain that's resilient enough such that when a disruption happens externally. It's diversified enough that the company doesn't actually suffer. So I would divide our conversation into two parts. So the the part that I just described is really purely financial. Like everything that's happening Mm -hmm. is on a spreadsheet. You're changing the numbers and you're seeing what happens as the numbers go down. You're seeing how much you have to manage expenses to, to try to maintain 
um, your, your leverage covenants. So this is all purely financial. When, when I would meet with the mm-hmm. CFO, we would sit and we would talk looking at a piece of paper uh, or looking at a computer sp- screen, and we would just go over and over all these different variables that are, okay, what happens if we change this? What if we change this? What if this goes to this? What, how many people would it be if we had to reduce expenses this much? What do we spend on this? And so this was all just on paper. And that's that's where our interest jumps in because we are the operations guys. We in our work we we work with operations and we model processes. So my question, jumping from this financial part that you said into operations part, where your experience and as you describe yourself an operator, uh, is uh, how do you model? Like you said, okay, so let's assume that we can cut costs by X amount. Uh, what how do you translate it to operations because it's easy to say oh let's cut the cost by 50 percent we know some amazing business people who say let's take a big company cut the cost by half let's hire you know half of the people randomly almost so how do you decide how much you can save on 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 sales without as you said getting mm, into the trouble when the market bounces but how much how much you can actually save on, on on i don't know delivery manufacturing or whatever so so let's think about uh, two people in an office looking at a computer screen talking about numbers and, and doing an analysis that based based on, on variables where you're just changing numbers on a spreadsheet mm-hmm. now open the lens up to a meeting where you're sitting across the table from individuals where each person has a role with each of these different lines mm-hmm. right Artur, you talked about supply chain so yep. if we're doing a if we're doing a management evaluation we want to hear from the owners of each of these categories operations uh, running a facility procurement managing the supply chain logistics you know having the goods travel either on the water, on a train, on a truck, uh, to, to either to your facility or to your customers. Um, and then what's the leadership of the CEO and the CFO? Because if you're just looking at the piece of paper, you're missing the people that have to help you implement those decisions. And this is actually a big part of, of leadership and, and trying to evaluate talent. Uh, no, a- as a CEO, I tried to never say, you're going to do this, you're going to do this, you have to do this, and you have to do this. And then each of the people that I'm talking to is going to do the, the, the numbers that we changed on the spreadsheet, right? What I would much rather do is have them have an understanding of what their part of the whole is and how important it is, and how they are responsible for managing their piece. So there's a a constant friction between operations and sales, right? (laughs) Operations says, uh, we have capacity, we could make more money if we had more orders. And sales says, uh, well, we need some customization for our products, for our customers, otherwise they won't buy it. And operations says, well, if we customize, then the lead time gets longer. So there's, there's a little built-in friction. The biggest friction between operations and sales 
is when there's not enough demand, right? Because operations doesn't go out and talk to the customers and, and generate more demand. And so the evaluation that you can do in a half of a day doesn't really get you the answers that you need, but it can give you a clue. It can give you, do I trust this person? If I was sitting in a board meeting with this person and they were telling me, we've noticed that our sales forecast has slowed down, therefore we've decided to hold off on some of our discretionary expenses, then the operations person says, uh, we've agreed no more overtime unless there's a particular customer that requires it, and so we're gonna cut back on our operational expenses. And you see that people are working together, that it's the people that are responsible for the numbers, right? Not the two financial guys sitting in an office looking at a spreadsheet. Mm -hmm. So I think that point of the evaluation, especially if you're going to own a business where, and, and, and my background is sales and marketing. So I like to really ask a lot of sales related questions. Tell me about your sales reps. Tell me about your comp plan. Tell me about what your, your, your next sales opportunity growth is. Like, What's the easiest one? What's the best return with the least amount of money? What's the one that you would like to do, but you have other things ahead of it? And just kind of let that person answer those questions. Because to me, what you're buying are the people. You're not buying the spreadsheet. You're buying the people. We, but, we, we worked on some, some, some mergers and acquisitions, and, and uh, we, we've been told that our role is to also to check how many people will remain because if the big company is, is 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 buying a smaller one, there is a you know culture shift, and it's it was also for us uh, pretty pretty obvious that what we are supposed to do is to retain the talent, because the company without okay so, some companies who buy for patents, okay, mm, but we are talking about about buying that operating business, Re retaining this is is, is is critical. I have a really quick question, let's say. Some of our listeners maybe they are thinking of being, you know, bought by by PE, and so would like to understand a bit better this 360 due diligence, the way that you do it. So if if there is an interested buyer and he wants to to to, to really learn uh, about the company, how long does it take uh, such a, such a process, uh, the due diligence in 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 this case? Okay, so just to be clear, due diligence is is during the time that you have an accepted offer and you have exclusivity to negotiate. So there's just one, there's just mm -hmm. one company. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Due diligence. Yep. Usually, well, how much time it takes is usually not up to either party. It's oftentimes dictated by the banker or the broker because the less time, the better if it's the, <laughs> if it's the seller or the broker. And mm -hmm. the more time, the better if it's the buyer. So typically it's between eight and 12 weeks. All right. Mm. A reason, reasonable, a reasonable amount of, of, of time. And uh, obviously there is uh, kind of this, uh, there's a lot of dynamic during the, the due diligence uh, that the, the buyer wants to find out, you know, as much as possible. The, uh, the seller wants to show themselves in the best, in the best light. Uh, but so again, I would I would ask about the, the operational aspect because you say you, you buy the people, right? But the the one one of the goals, for example, of our consulting practice is to 
separate a bit the the the, the people or the, the the persons from the operation such that the business can run uh with you know the, the the processes can run with with almost any people of sufficient experience and knowledge so, such that the business doesn't have doesn't rely on a specific person there's no key man risk uh as is usually called in 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 the operation so uh do you you know do 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 you do you see that key man risk as as a problem in your in your you know you do, you do when you do due diligence have you seen companies that have key man risk and how do you how do you go about removing it i think the big the biggest key man risk issue is if you're buying a family business that's been run by the founder usually that person has all of the decision making usually they usually have most if not all of the financial decision making they sign the checks, they approve invoices. So oftentimes, if you're, if you're buying a family business, uh, the founder will stay for a year to two years. If you're buying a family business as private equity, oftentimes you want the founder to invest with you mm-hmm. so that they only sell 80% of the company, and they keep 20%, 15%. Uh, and then they get to invest with you so that in in five or six years time when the company is sold again they get the benefits of the private equity improvements so if you have that dynamic you've offset your key man risk because now your key man is your partner too uh, and you may have a plan where you say to uh to the founder we're going to hire a cfo that's going to happen in the first two months no no debate Right, we're not we're not going to give you a vote on that, but we'll say, and you, if you want to retire, or even if you don't want to retire, we're going to hire a professional manager to come in and train with you for X. Sometimes it's only a matter of a couple of weeks, but what you want to do is you want to outline how that person is going to transition so that they have no incentive to leave. And that they have all the incentive to help give as much information as possible to minimize any key man risk. So that would be a dynamic where you have them locked up through an investment side by side. Mm-hmm. If not, you have to be ready the first month to bring in a replacement. In some cases, the founder doesn't want to stay more than 30, 60, 90 days. And so um, it's part of the metric of how much risk do you have of things falling apart. So if you have a CFO, typically, and what many private equity firms just want to make sure there's continuity of that you're collecting your receivables. Typically, sales are harder to slow down quickly, right? Mm-hmm. Like usually a business is generating sales. The, the, if the sales cycle is more than a few weeks, the next few months of sales are already coming. So you have a little bit of a window. The next level of risk is really around customers. And I think that's part of the evaluation is how sticky are the customers? Here's one that we really like to look at. And this is why um, a software business is valued at uh, 12 or 15 or 18 times its EBITDA 
whereas mm-hmm. a distribution business might be five or six or seven times. Mm-hmm. So in, in a software business model, I'm selling a license. And once you have my license, you pay me quarterly, monthly, annually, but I don't have to sell you again to get your revenue. So the recurring revenue from software is very sticky. If I wake up January mm-hmm. 1, I can tell you December 31st how much revenue I'm going to get from my customers. And then everything on top of that is the new revenue that we want to generate. If I have a distribution business where I have 800, 1,000 customers, and my biggest customer changes year after year, and I know I'll have a big customer, I don't know which one it's going to be every year, there's more risk in that business. Because if one customer goes to a different distributor and you've lost 5 or 10% of your business, um, it's hard to make it up. So mm-hmm. you have to look at who your customer is, what is the, what's the typical sales cycle, how close are the salespeople to the customers? Is it the salesperson's account or is it the company's account? If the salesperson were to leave, could they bring that account to a different distributor? Or if they leave, they continue to buy from you because the product is one of a kind. So think of all of the variables around the customer and how much risk you have to try to measure. And so that's where from from an operational experience, and when I say operating, I don't mean running the facility of uh, a manufacturing or distribution facility. I mean the day-to-day managing of your uh, of who your customers are, how you get new customers, how hard it is to keep your existing customers, how easy it is for them to leave. All of those things go into measuring the value of a business. I guess, I guess it's one of the reasons, again, why, why software is a bit e- easier or, or, or stable. If you change your software, you have a lot of processes to change usually as well. If you have a distribution, uh, there is a truck coming with some goods. I don't care what, where, where, is the, where did it come from. Yeah, and, we, and our listeners will know that Marian has a, a, a very kind of uh, low view of uh, software developers and that they're, they're not doing anything complicated, right, Marian? So, uh, <laughs> oh, absolutely. That's, that's, that's kind of a, a, a running theme through some of the, the, the discussions that we've had. But I, 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 want to, I want to ask you about now, we've, we've, we've spoken about the, the, the kind of the, the measurement of the company when, when it's being uh, considered for acquisition or acquired. But then the goal usually is to make the business work and make it work better and grow, right? So how do you, uh, how do you kind of check whether there is scalability in the business? In your experience, how, you know, if you have two companies, they, 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 they both look great currently, but are you able to tell the difference between a company that just will stay the same for the next, you know, eons, versus a company that can just easily scale to 10 times, 20 times the, the size that it is now. And so that has a lot to do with the sales chain. And so that's, that's where somebody who has a lot of experience with managing sales channels and managing sales managers and really talking about who is the customer. How do you get to the customer? How do you influence the customer? How does the customer view your company? Like those are critical questions to answer. And those will answer a lot of the scalability questions. 
If the sales cycle is person to person, if it takes a long time, it's very difficult to scale that business more than you can add salespeople, have them make sales calls, get them in front of customers that are potential customers. And then in, in X, it could be three or six months, you make a sale. So scaling that business 10 times is next to impossible. Mm-hmm. So a business like that, you're saying, well, how can I make it more efficient? How can I make the processes that we, that we do? And do we have too much customization, which extends the, the selling cycle? Do we have too much expense before we make a sale? Do we have after sales expenses? So those are all things that you evaluate. And frankly, most professional people who are looking at evaluating companies will be able to say, you can't scale this business very easily. The sales cycle is long just for the things I listed. There are things you can do, however. You can think about, uh, do we have uh, geographic expansion capability? How much does it cost to get into a new geography? Does the company have examples of geographic expansion? where they move into a new market, they hire salespeople, they eventually open a small office. Um, do you need to open an office? The other piece would be, are you uh, covering all of the different markets that could be applicable for your product? And so I would say that the, the biggest scalability questions are, do you have geographic opportunity? And do you have vertical market opportunity? So if you're selling construction products, do you sell also to hotels, uh, restaurants, hospitals, and schools? Because a lot of uh, those particular vertical markets are have different categories, even within general construction. I mean, I'm not talking about cement or plywood, but wall covering in hospitals is specific yeah. to hospitals. Uh, flooring in hospitals is specific because they're they're focused on on bacteria and health issues. Um, even the linen and the bedding in hospitals is different. Hospitality has different requirements from commercial, different from residential. Uh, if you're if you're going to change your hotel room every five years, your investment in finishes in that hotel room are different than if you're going to build an office with a twenty year lease. So vertical markets and geographic expansion. And then if, if you can't make the business dramatically more efficient, like that's your evaluation, right? I, I can't make a, a cycle which is six months for a sales cycle into a, an online sale where I get a sale every day. It's just the two <laughs> things are incompatible. Yeah. So then you're just trying to professionalize the business. Do, do we have good processes for procurement? Do we have good processes for vendor management? Do we have good processes for receiving and deliveries? Do we have a a higher than normal expense rate for freight damage? All of those things have to do with how efficient you are and typically how well your processes are. Because if you have good repeatable processes, you're measuring things like freight damage and you're addressing them when they go above a certain. So I I think this. uh, I was just going to say. That's typically not the level of detail you get at a family-run business. They're not Absolutely. measuring what their, what their freight expense for damage is. They're not measuring what their warranty expense is. They're not looking at 
things like working capital uh, by having too much inventory because they, you know, they buy a bunch from their friend every quarter and then they have six months worth. And at the end of the year, they have half a million dollars of this unfinished product or, un or, or product that won't be sold for months tied up on a shelf rather than in a bank. It, it kind of depends whether it's a successful family-run business or one that's kind of barely getting by day to day. But, but, but the barely, barely getting business probably doesn't grab much in the attention from PE. Well, from from what we hear, maybe it should because there's plenty of uh, opportunity to improve, right? So to grow. I, I would and... say I would say that think about that. There are think of the private equity firms as 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 colors on the rainbow or flavors, because each of them have their own idea of what the perfect company is for them, and for right. some people, the perfect company is a total mess where there's nothing but a hundred things to fix because they've done it before. They know the top 10 places to go. They can fix things uh, efficiently because they've done it before. Then there's the firms where they say, we want one that's already fixed up because we're going to put two or three together. And our strength is integration. Then right. there's one that says, this company has uh, done all the geographic expansion in this one market. We're good at getting into the other market. So those different flavors usually are based on experience. and so. There's really, and I think when we talked earlier, there's no one type of private equity uh, firm. There's no one type of company that a private equity firm likes to buy. It really has to be the match between what a company has and what the private equity firm is looking for. It is, it, it is, it, it, it is a, a nice cycle that we made here because we asked you in the beginning like what you should expect from private equity except from the check. And what, what you're describing now is exactly like you can expect the help in expanding into new geographical markets. You can uh, expect help with integrating with, with other, you know, creating this vertically, uh, maybe vertically integrated businesses. We, we work with that as well. So, so, so this, is, this is now it, 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 it I think, opens up uh, the possibilities. It's not just a grumpy guy with the checkbook that says, okay, your money and please bring me more in a week or i will break <laughs> uh, your legs but it also uh, mm, no not 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 that uh but it, it, there's also i think another conclusion which which can be drawn here uh because the the the, the audience of our podcast is mainly business owners and, and managers it's not pe uh, people specifically and i think for them the practical takeaway will be that if they want to attract, if they want to sell their company to private equity, they want to attract the, inv the, the investment, they need to find that match that you're speaking about. Uh, they need to find a company that will respond to the particular conditions they are in, whether you know, they have opportunities for expansion or uh, for, for different markets, for vertical integration. They need to find a company that is looking for specifically that characteristic and highlighted in their interactions in their materials because that will be the, the the selling point the appeal right i think that that's that makes perfect sense the uh, and if you're a sophistic if you're a sophisticated business owner you're on a fan, you're on you're on a business you're thinking about selling it i think you want to highlight what the the strengths of your company what the strengths are 
but you also want to highlight what you haven't been able to do and what you think the company could become. And in some cases, the company can't become what you want it to do because of your shortcoming. And so mm-hmm. the, I would say the, the, the best seller is going to say, I, I wish we could get into international. I think there's huge demand from the time I've traveled. There's opportunity. I just don't know how to do it. I don't have the time. I don't have the bandwidth. And so that sends a signal that you've already thought about it. Here's here's a management tool that I like to use. This is with with all of the teams when we're trying to figure out projects that we're working on that are outside of just kind of what we do all day, every day. Um, Typically, you know, trying to do continuous improvement. I'd say, I want you to have a list of 10 projects. Okay, you always should have a list, 10, maybe it's five, six. We only can do the top one or two. But that doesn't mean three, four, or five, and six are not important. And that doesn't mean that next year, number six doesn't move to number one. But we always want to be looking at what are all the things that we could be doing. And so if you have a list like that, if you're a business owner and you have a list of all the things you'd like to do, and you might be embarrassed because you've only been able to do one or two, if you worked for me, I would only allow you to do one or two, right? And until the one or two is complete, you can't move on the list. But it's important to have that list. Now, I wish this was my idea. This was taught to me a long time ago uh, by uh, a CEO who said, we can only do two or three things at a time, but we want to have 10. So we make sure we're doing the right two or three. Absolutely. That makes perfect sense. Uh, I think I think we've reached a, a, a very nice closing point because uh, we've we've spoken about all the all all the characteristics uh, of a company that uh, private equity is interested in, and and how to actually uh, you know look at the, at the company and what companies can do to be more be more attractive. Uh, your your comp- uh, the, the, the 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 company that uh, you're involved with, uh, it's uh, what like sorry. Woodlake, yes. <laughs> Sorry, it just um, escaped my, my my memory. So Woodlake uh, is obviously uh, there's there are links uh, online uh, on your LinkedIn profile um, as well. Are there any other uh, kind of ways that uh, you would you would recommend people reach you I if would, they want more before, information? Before we jump into 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 links, uh, what is the flavor of of what you do right now? Like, what are the companies fair, that, uh, that, that you would question. like to attract? Okay, we, we, we look for family-owned businesses, not private equity-owned. And that's, that's an obvious flavor because private equity has usually professionalized and, and created value or, or taken cost and, and efficiency, inefficiency out of a business. Mm-hmm. So... Um, Family-owned is is a big one. Uh, industrial is another one mm-hmm. because there's less competition around industrial. High margins, which oh, is everybody everybody loves high uh, margins. Well, but but some people are happy with uh, lower margin business because they think that they can improve them. For us, it's just like something Artur would say: higher margin business gives you more margin for error. And so, (laughs) 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 but it also may mean that the business is run very tight. Think about Mm -hmm. it, right? Uh, 
I, I could have a very high margin business because I'm keeping it only in three states where I can control everything. I, I can see what happens every, every week, mm-hmm. visit customers, and I, and make, I might be making a lot of money in three states. Mm-hmm. So that business might have easy geographic expansion that the founder might not be interested in doing because he had a, a $40 million business that was earning eight or $9 million. But if you could have a $100 million business in three or four years, and you could earn 16 or $17 million, that's a dramatic increase. And the only difference might be geography. All right. Sounds, sounds, sounds perfect. But that's reasonable. our flavor. We try to keep, uh, and, and small, where there's less competition. Absolutely. Right. The, the, the lower middle market. So uh, we'll post links to uh, to 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 your uh, to 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 Woodlake Wood uh, in the description to the episode, so people can find out more and uh, uh, you know. And my LinkedIn profile. Your LinkedIn yes. profile. Yep. Uh, anything else you would like to 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 ask to 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 share with our audience? I I think those two are are going to be sufficient. All right. Great. Uh, so thank you very much for sharing this with us. Uh, I'm sure uh, the, the, our audience will have quite a lot to, to uh, digest from this episode because there was quite a lot of information. And as usual, we uh, hope this was of use to someone. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about Woodlake Group at woodlake-group.com. As usual, all links to the references will be available in the notes to this episode. Also, don't miss the next one, where we'll be talking to James E. Miller II, businessman with an extensive C-suite experience, founder and CEO of the Vision Investment Group, about creating, communicating and implementing a business vision. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform or visit bdr.show to find out more about future episodes and guests. You can also check out Cognition.llc for more information on Cognition Shared Solutions, our services and other events hosted by us. For now, it's thank you from myself, your friendly neighborhood data guy, Dr. Marian Siwiak, and my co-host, Artur Guja. Thank you.